Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have uh, my guest, uh, Dr. Jason Lyle, who's going to be joining me in just a moment. Uh, those who uh, are familiar with Dr. Lyle, um, he has the wonderful website, Biblical Science Institute, where um, he uh, really comes at the whole enterprise of science from a biblical perspective. He is very um, intentional about grounding what he does within the context of a Christian world and life view. And I think it's very important when we're uh, talking about things like science and how to apply uh, biblical principles to that enterprise. So folks, if you're interested in those sorts of things, especially coming from a presuppositional perspective, um, you will very much appreciate Dr. Lyle's website and the many articles that he has there as well. He also has many, many videos on YouTube, whether he puts them up himself in his own site or uh, he does interviews like this. Uh, he's got a lot of material out there that I'm sure folks will find uh, very useful. Um, as you know, his focus tends to be on uh, astrophysics and things like that and Big Bang cosmology and how he comes at that uh, topic from his perspective. You know, you have the whole old earth, young earth debates and things like that. He's very much conversant in that. But I actually invited Dr. Lyle on to talk about a uh, different yet related topic, and that's the uh, the topic of evolution. And we will be sure to have him in just a few moments kind of define uh, the categories for us so that we can talk about this uh, in a meaningful and clear uh, way. Because it is a very important topic, especially when we're dealing with issues of uh, our origins. Um, where we come from, uh, it really is very much related to where we are going and uh, the importance of living the life and making sure that we're intentional, standing on top of the authority of God's word. These are all very important and related issues. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing what Dr. Lyle has to say. But before we get there, I just want to remind folks that we had Revealed Apologetics just recently reached 5,000 subscribers on YouTube. Thank you so much for those who have supported, whether financially, doing the thumbs up or putting a nice comment. I very much appreciate it. Uh, whether you're a believer and you're eating all this stuff up and using it in your own context, or you're an interested unbeliever who's been following along and respectfully interacting in the comments, I thank all of you guys for your support. So in celebration of the 5,000 uh, subscribers, I have uh, gathered together a very random and mixed crowd of apologists that will actually be on a live stream with me together to do a huge Q&A. It's going to be an entire Q&A, um, and it is comprised of both presuppositional apologists, classical apologists, and I thought it would be interesting to get people who you don't expect to, on the same screen together. And of course, as questions come in, you'll see some of the unique apologetic uh, methods kind of come out and how we answer those questions. So we're not debating each other, but I thought it'd be a great opportunity for people to see how people from within different apologetic methods address some apologetic questions. So I hope you guys um, are excited about that. That's going to be on July 20th at 9 p.m. Eastern. Also, part two of the study question series on Greg Bonson's book, Against All Opposition. I'll be making that video. All of my notes are set up there, my PowerPoint slides, and I will be putting out part two for folks to follow that along. That is this book right here, Against All Opposition by Greg Bonson. Uh, chapter two, there are 11 chapters. So my goal is to do an 11 part series on the, pardon, on the study questions in this book. So please, you don't want to miss those. Lastly, I've been writing an apologetics devotional series. Day two is available on revealedapologetics.com. If you are looking for just a, an easy uh, to read devotional with some apologetic and biblical application, um, both of those day one and day two are available on the website. 
All right. Well, without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Lyle on the screen with me. How are you doing, Dr. Lyle? I'm very well, thanks. How about you? And I, I'm doing well, thank you. And I just want to thank you again for coming on. Every time you come on, Dr. Lyle, everyone always says, when is Dr. Lyle going to be back on? So people really enjoy what you have to say. I don't know, maybe oh. it's your cool shirts or the background, their books in the background. People like you, man. <laughs> Good to hear. <laughs> All righty. Well, we're talking about an interesting topic, uh, um, evolution. I was just telling you before um, we went live uh, that I had an interesting reaction by people on Twitter and various other uh, platforms. People surprised that this is still an issue, right? Is evolution creation still a thing? There are even Christians who affirm evolution. And, and as you know, it definitely is an issue that is still very much important and apologetically relevant. So, um, I just want to, before I get into my questions, why don't you um, share a little bit about your background, um, even though it's not specifically on evolution, and then maybe explain to us some of your experience in dealing with evolution within your own apologetic context. Okay. Well, I, um, I, I fortunately, I'm blessed to have been uh, brought up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents are believers, and um, most of my extended family really are uh, Christians, and, and I feel very, very, I don't take that for granted. I know not everybody has that. And so I was introduced to Christ when I was very young. I received him as my Lord and Savior. I was about six or seven years old. And I, you know, I didn't know as much about theology as I know now, but I knew enough to know that I was a wicked sinner and that, that Jesus had taken my place on the cross. If I would repent of my sin and trust in him, he would save me. So I believe I was saved at that point and I grew in my faith. I was also very interested in science. That's just something that the Lord put in me, uh, astronomy in particular, but I, some scientists, they really, they really like their field and they just ignore all others. I'm not like that. I like them all. I think they're all fascinating. Biology and geology, it's all, it's all amazing to me. And so I, I love science. And um, when I was then in probably middle school, well, certainly by the time I was in high school, I was introduced to evolution. And I was taught that that was the scientific view of how humans came about. And I knew that was contrary to God's word. And so that that was my first uh, clash there. I knew I had to I had to deal with this because if I was going to be a scientist, I had to deal with sure. these claims that evolution is scientific, that creation isn't. Um, I came to find that that's that's not a defensible uh, position. And so that, but that's where my interest began. And then it was really in college where I really started getting into it. I really started researching um, the science that that lines up with uh, creation, which all science does when you understand it, when you have the proper sure. presuppositions. And so um, th that's when I really got serious about it. And I started sharing this with others as well. I started sharing it with my Christian friends, um, how, you know, the evidence really does line up with, you know, a, a literal historical genesis of the Genesis flood and the fossils and things like that. It just made sense. And I saw them get excited about it. And that, that blesses me to, to see other Christians get really excited about the faith and how, uh, how our faith, um, it's not, it's not a blind faith. It's a faith that makes sense of the universe around us and makes sense of the science. Hmm. Very good. Now you said something about science makes sense when you have the proper presuppositions. Can you kind of list for us some of the important presuppositions that we bring to the table when doing science? Maybe that'll be helpful for our conversation as you kind of later on um, give the, the Christian response to um, an evolutionary perspective. Well, what are some of the important presuppositions of the scientific enterprise itself? Okay. Well, we've all heard of the scientific method that, uh, you know, you can propose a hypothesis, you can test it, observation, experimentation. So there's an implicit assumption that our observations correspond to reality. That would be a, a presupposition that what my eyes inform my brain is 
basically true. We know that our senses can be fooled under certain circumstances, but God gave us five, and actually more than that, if you consider internal systems and so on, it's, it's pretty amazing. And from the Christian worldview, I can trust that my senses are basically reliable because they've been designed uh, by God. Now, I'm a finite creature. They don't have to be infallible, but they're, they're good enough to for, for what we do. God made the seeing eye and the hearing ear, the Bible says, and so I'd expect that they are truthful because God is, God is truthful. Uh, the, the idea that when we repeat an experiment over and over again, we get the same result. We would expect that in a Christian worldview, that's a presupposition. Uh, that's the presupposition of uh, uniformity, not to be confused with uniformitarianism, but uniformity simply means there's orderliness in nature. And that orderliness extends over time and space. And that allows us to do what we call induction, which is a very important part of science, where we draw a general conclusion from specific instances and the assumption that allows us to do that, the presupposition is that there are patterns in nature that we can uncover by seeing specific instances of those patterns. And this is something that um, all, scientists, all, all scientists assume that, and it's something that has absolutely no secular foundation. That's something that Dr. Bonson talked about. It's something that uh, David Hume tried to answer unsuccessfully from his secular perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, how do I know the sun will rise tomorrow? And of course, I have an answer for that, Genesis 8.22. Uh, God promises that there are certain cycles in nature that will continue as long as the earth remains. And so, and, and God's in a position to know that because he's beyond time and he's the one that determines reality. And so, of sure. course, he's in a position to know that. So those are some of the presuppositions of science, along with the, the capacity of the human mind to be rational. Science presupposes that I can consider the various options and choose the one that is, is the best. And all of those, I would argue, are Christian presuppositions. Science is an inherently Christian endeavor. That's not to say non-Christians can't do it, but when they do it, they're borrowing from the Christian worldview because right. they're borrowing presuppositions that are only that can only be sensibly justified in the Christian worldview. Mm -hmm. uh, and if folks are interested in kind of digging deeper, I highly recommend Dr. Lyle's book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. Um, again, a defense of, of the young earth creationist perspective, but also it is an application of presuppositional apologetics, which, uh, you know, listeners to this channel will be very interested in. I'm sure a lot of people already know about this book, but if you haven't, uh, check it out. It is excellent. Excellent as an introductory text as well. If you're kind of just wanting to get a feel as to how presuppositionalism works and specifically how it applies to the whole origins debate, I think this is a, an excellent place for folks to, um, to start. All right. Well, let's jump right in, uh, Dr. Lyle. When we talk about evolution, I mean, even the thumbnail on this uh, on this this show here, I said the question was, is evolution viable? Um, we know that evolution is really an umbrella term. It really it, what do you mean is evolution viable? What kind of evolution are you referring to? So my first question will be in light of the fact that evolution is an umbrella term. Can you define for us? what evolution is, generally speaking, and perhaps get in more of the specifics as to the different kinds of evolution and where they kind of cross hairs with um, the Christian perspective, where we my, our antennas might be going up and saying, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure if that's if that's a position that that we want to hold. Okay, the, the big one, and, and yes, evolution, the word, the word just kind of means change, and uh, there's lots of things that change, so I don't object to that. But the, the type of evolution, probably the one that we're going to go into more depth here, would be uh, what, what we might call common descent, the idea that all biological life forms on earth are descended from one common ancestor. And so the, broccoli is your distant cousin in that view. 
And uh, I, I like to use that term. Some, some evolutionists have said, well, you're making fun of us when you say that. And I'm like, okay. but that's what you believe. So, I mean, you know, isn't, isn't it? And well, yeah, that's what we believe. Um, so the idea is that uh, our, our, there was a common ancestor billions of years ago, uh, a single-celled microbe that uh, itself arose from inanimate, non-living matter somehow. That's sometimes called chemical evolution. That's kind of the first step. And then the rest of it, the um, descent with modification, as this thing reproduces, mutations affect the DNA and that changes the traits that are expressed. And since these, this is all accidental, all the mutations are just mistakes, they're not planned. Uh, most of those uh, are harmful to the organism. Some of them are immediately fatal, but those, those aren't passed on. And the idea is every now and then a good one occurs, one that enhances the survival value of the organism and, and therefore organisms diversify and change. And so all the kinds, animals, uh, plants even, fungus, we're all descended from a common ancestor. I reject that view, but that's, that's sure. the, uh, the sort of the neo-Darwinian view of evolution. Now, I've often heard people kind of separate uh, in the debate um, this issue of abiogenesis and of evolutionary progression, right? Uh, from, you know, simple to more complex. So someone will say evolution just describes, you know, how organisms have changed and adapted through time. But the issue of where life came from is really a separate issue. And I've seen some evolutionists, and, and let me clarify, naturalistic evolutionists. Theistic evolution is a different thing. And Dr. Lyle and myself would take issue with that perspective as well. But let's kind of shift just focus on naturalistic uh, uh, evolution. I see many people try to distance themselves from the, the question of abiogenesis. Is that an intentional distancing or is it just truly, you know, that's just irrelevant to the evolutionary uh, model? It's very intentional. I remember I, I was talking with Eugenie Scott one time and, I, and she, she brought that up and I thought that was interesting. Uh, I can understand why, why the secularists do not want to talk about chemical evolution. Okay, and, and it's because there's, there's just no good answer for that. It, it violates a law of nature, the law of biogenesis. Life always comes from life. We've seen no exceptions to that. And yet evolution is predicated on an, a supposed exception to that law. Mm. Uh, there's, there's no good evidence that that could happen or that it has happened. And so I can understand why they'd want to skip that. But then I like to point out to them, but that is the first step for anything else to follow. In your, in your view, you believe that there was once no life in the universe anywhere. And now there is. And so you have to get life from non-life and you can say, well, that's a separate question. Okay. But, you, but in order for what follows to be even remotely rational, that step has to be possible. And I'd like you to, to justify that please. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's fine if they want to separate them as different questions, but my point is sure. they're both required, both chemical evolution and then the neo-Darwinian evolution that follows both are required mm -hmm. in order for the, um, the secular view to be even remotely rational. Yeah. Now, I noticed that in this whole creation evolution debate, a lot of people, especially from like the, the people attacking the young earth creationist perspective, they kind of hand wave it as irrelevant. And I, I'm very familiar with this, you know, um, even if we're not talking about create uh, young earth creationism, older creation or, or whatever, um, you will see many skeptics uh, just hand wave a view as though waving your hand magically makes the issue uh, go away. So uh, with that said, um, is the creation evolution debate a closed case for a lot of people? This is just kind of like, oh, this again, this is kind of like we're done. Evolution evolution along the lines as to how we would disagree with it. Right. It's a closed case. It has been proven. It is demonstrated uh, without a doubt. You're kind of irrational and unscientific if you deny this. Is the creation evolution debate a closed debate? Um, because I've, I've heard some some comments to the contrary. Uh, how would you speak to that? 
Well, it, in my mind, it, it is closed because God has spoken. And so and he, okay. God, God's a creationist, and he has told us how he made the universe. He, he didn't give us a lot of details, but the details he gave us are true, and mm -hmm. they can be trusted. And so in, in, in a sense, it is it is a closed issue. And, and I kind of feel it's, it's kind of funny the way you, you put that, because that's kind of how I feel. I'm like, we, we've, we've demonstrated this. This is not, it's not only that God's word teaches this, but we've shown we've shown how the science lines up with it. Why are you still thinking that evolution in, in a Darwinian mm -hmm. sense is even remotely possible? Uh, haven't we? You know, this has been a, in, my, in my view, this has been established since uh, 1985 when uh, Bonson proved that that Stein was wrong because Bonson wasn't just defending the existence of God. He said that in his debate. He said, I'm defending the Christian worldview as a system of thought. And that includes creation. And so in a sense, by the impossibility of the contrary, it's been proved. That being said, not everyone has been convinced of that proof. Not everyone has even heard right. that proof. In fact, right. most people have gone through a public education system where have, they have simply been indoctrinated to believe that evolution has been proved beyond question. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't really know the details. Uh, if I ask them, how do you know that? Well, fossils, if I ask them which fossils, they don't know. They've just been told that that's the case. And so there is... Mm -hmm. In the minds of people, this is not settled. There, that is, there are a number of people in the world today that still believe in evolution. I would argue they shouldn't. And of course, there are uh, many people that believe in creation as well. Now, I would imagine people listening to this, maybe some unbelievers, will listen to what you just said and said, that's, that's ridiculous. Dr. Lyle, you're, you're out of your mind. Evolution is the majority position in academia today. Um, you know, you, Mr. Dr. Lyle, you're the one that is on the outskirts of believing something that is akin to, say, believing in a flat earth. You've heard all this. I mean, some Christians who disagree with you will say something along those lines. Um, mm -hmm. So how, how would you respond to that? I mean, a lot of Christians feel intimidated by holding to a creationist perspective because they feel overwhelmed by the majority of very brilliant secular scientists who hold to the theory of evolution. Now, how would you encourage uh, a Christian who's struggling with that? Yeah, that's a uh, it's a, it's a it's an error in logic. It's an appeal to majority or an appeal to authority. In this case, they're kind of combined. But uh, just because the majority of people believe something doesn't make it true. And in fact, every scientific discovery that's ever been made has gone against what the majority believed. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been a discovery. It would have been a mere, merely a confirmation. And so if, my point is, if, if everybody had that attitude, science would come to a standstill. There, there would be nothing new to be discovered and we wouldn't make any progress. So that's that's really kind of an anti-scientific way of thinking about things. And I'm not suggesting we ignore um, what you know the what the um, what the secularists say, but I do think we need to interpret that data and we need to recognize that they have a worldview that controls how they're understanding the evidence. And by the way, I've had enough conversation with scientists. This this would this would surprise most uh, non-scientists, but most scientists, if you ask them why they believe in evolution, will say it's because all the other scientists believe in evolution. So mm -hmm. it's interesting that scientists, you'd think that we would be above that kind of reasoning, but we're not because we're human beings. And it is our nature to get intimidated when the majority of people believe something. Uh, you know, the Bible says the uh, fear of man brings a snare. And it really does when we get intimidated by, by what even very intelligent people say. When those people go against God's word, we stand we stand on God's word. And of course, there are there are many fine Ph.D. scientists who are creationists as well. Mm -hmm. Are you saying so that when you ask most evolutionists, why are you an evolutionist? Of course, they will appeal to what they see as evidence, but they will also appeal to this is the consensus of scholarship to bolster their perspective, right? Usually they'll they'll throw out a piece of evidence. They'll say, well, fossils. And I'll say, well, which fossils? Mm -hmm. Lucy. Okay, let's talk about Lucy. Why do you think that she is even remotely supportive of evolution? Because they don't know any of the details. They've heard that. 
They've heard that fossils support evolution. They've heard that. Mm -hmm. um, but then I'll ask them, okay, so what's the real reason then? It's obviously not fossils because you haven't personally, for, for the majority, now there are a few that have dug into it. I understand that. But sure. for the majority of them, they haven't, they haven't dug into the actual evidence. They're taking it on faith that the people that taught them have looked into the evidence. And mm -hmm. most of them haven't looked into the evidence. They've taken it on faith that the people that taught them and so on. And so the bottom line is when, when I when push comes to shove and I really start pushing on them, why do you really believe this? They'll say, well, I just I just think it's inconceivable that the majority of scientists would, would be wrong about this issue. Mm -hmm. So, OK, so we can always find someone who says they kind of lean on authority. But what about the people who are the actual workers in the specific field who are not just punting to say, well, this guy said this. They've actually done you know, we say they've done the work, so to speak. Right. Um, how would we engage with someone like that who says, here, evolution is true because, and they kind of give some of the specific uh, points that they believe to be evidence for their position. Okay. There, there are a few, but the, the number one answer, believe it or not, is still a form of appeal to authority. Okay. If you were to ask a geneticist, what is the best evidence for human evolution? If he's really studied the topic, he will probably not say genetics. He'll say, well, probably fossils. Okay. And if you ask a person who's an expert on fossils, what's the best evidence for evolution? They will probably not say fossils. They'll say, well, we think the geneticists have it figured out. And okay. I've, I've experienced this kind of cross-disciplinary circular reasoning in my own field in astronomy where they try to age date things and they rely on the geologists, but the geologists are relying on the astronomers and so on. And I've experienced that in my, in my own educational mm -hmm. um, background. But um, there, there, there are a few exceptions, certainly. And so the, the, uh, the two main fields where they would say, well, we think we have evidence for evolution would be either genetics or fossil evidence. Okay. So those would be the areas that we'll probably want to focus in on. Okay. Uh, now, I want you to kind of role play for me. If you could, I, mean, I hope this isn't too much to ask, but can you pretend for just a few moments to be a naturalistic evolutionist and lay out the strongest case that they make for their position so that we can create um, a steel man. And then you can put your, your, your feet back in the, the Christian shoes and refute the straw man. So um, don't feel like you need to do this quickly. Take your time. If you can put yourself in an evolutionist shoes right now and say, evolution is true. And then talk from the perspective of someone who is informed in the data and to the best of your ability, demonstrate the obvious truth of evolution. And then we'll kind of have you respond to that. Cause I think that'll be helpful for people to see kind of both of these uh, positions side by side and see the, the strengths and the weaknesses. Is that, okay. is, that is, is that too much to ask it? Oh. I'm asking you to pretend to be a, a, an evolutionist. Yeah. Well, I'm going yeah, to try to, I'm not going to, I'm not, you have actor. to have the face. You have to make a mean, see the evolution is the bad guy. So you have to make the mean face. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, these, these are good people. It's just yes, they are. I'm just messing around. Um, at least I think they are, and I think I have God's word as support. But in any case, amen. I think one of the arguments they would make is they would make an argument based on similarity, taxonomy, the fact that we can that we can classify organisms, okay. and they fall into a nested hierarchy. So we know a hierarchy. You know this. You know, these these two things belong to this and this and this belong to this and so on. And there's a hierarchy within a hierarchy. So it's a nested hierarchy. Um, you know, so you can classify uh, humans. You know, we're in we're in the, you know, the, you know, the kingdom phylum class order family genus species. You know, so we're, we're in the primates and we're in the mammals and we're in the vertebrates and so on. Yeah. And they would say that 
that's what we would expect if life evolved from a, a common organism. You'd expect to be able to classify it that way. And then I think they would further they would further try to argue. They would say that um, not only is it true in terms of physical traits, but genetically, genetically we're more similar to say a chimpanzee than um, a lizard, and and more similar to a lizard than a fruit fly, for example. And so they, they would say that genetics, the genetic code, also falls into a a, a nested hierarchy. Right. And so that they would say that that then is support of common descent. So that's where they would take it on terms of the genetics, I think. Okay. And they might make some specific cases like the um, the supposed uh, chromosome two fusion that happens. Um, I don't know if you're interested in that. We can talk about that. Yeah. Or not. yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. So, so, so you given broad kind of, this is what they would appeal to. Yeah. Do you think you can give some specific examples that they appeal to, to justify those broader points that you just used to summarize their position? Yeah. One specific example is they'd say that, you know, the, cause we're supposed to be related to the great apes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so apes have um, uh, 24 pairs of chromosomes. Human beings have 23. Okay. And so uh, at some point, what we lost a chromosome what happened there and so they've they've claimed that what happened is in in because uh, they think that the thing we're descended from would have a genome similar to a, a chimpanzee that okay. they think that's probably our nearest living relative and they would say that the chromosomes 12 and 13 on the chimpanzee fused you see so two of the chromosomes came together and there are certain segments in our chromosome 2 that that kind of line up with uh with the chimpanzees chromosomes, they've actually renamed them chromosome 2A and 2B in chimpanzees because of the alleged similarity to the okay. chromosome 2. So that's one specific example that they would make. That's in terms of genetics. And then in terms of fossil evidence, they would have, they would have to do a little more hand-waving, but they would say that there are certain um, transitional features. And it, this would primarily be coming from people who have not, who are not experts on paleoanthropology. But they would say that there is uh, quite a range in terms of the different fossils that we find of human beings, which is true. And they would try to make a case that we go from an ape, a more ape-like form to a more human-like form. Uh, now, I've studied the fossils enough to know they're going to have a tough time making that case. But okay. that's, that's what they would argue. And then they would do that. They would say, well, maybe we haven't found all the missing links. But nonetheless, in broad strokes, um, there are certain organisms that, because of this nested hierarchy, you, you can find that in the fossil record, too. And so they would, and we tend to find certain organisms below other organisms. Uh, statistically, if you find a, a trilobite, it's likely going to be in a lower layer than, for example, a bird, uh, as just as just one example. So uh, there's a there's a statistical order, and they would say that represents time, that represents millions of years mm. of organisms, and we see that they change as you go up. So there you go, evolution in action. And then third, they would try to argue philosophically that uh, creation should be excluded a priori, because it's not naturalistic. So many evolutionists- and, and just to interrupt you real quick, I do apologize. You're talking there at this point, some evolutionists who don't see that as an option. You have other people who say, well, maybe God could be involved, but I'm not really speaking to that. But there are people who are more vocal to make that point that God is not really a good addition to this whole you know, explanation. I just want to make that qualification because I know not all evolutionists would necessarily say that. Well, yeah, and if, you know, it's like like creationists. There's different varieties of evolutionists. Sure. You can't sure. get to an agree on exactly everything. Right. I'm trying to speak in terms of what you know, what most of them what most of them would say, mm -hmm. and uh, I think a lot of them are motivated by either 
metaphysical or methodological naturalism. There are some who would say, well, I believe in God, God exists, but we can't bring him into the equation. When we do science, they would say, because you'd never know if you were discovering something about the universe or or if God's just messing with you, right? So you you have to pretend that God doesn't exist when you do your science. So they would embrace methodological naturalism and in some cases, empiricism. Sure. And I think the more epistemologically astute evolutionists tend to fall back on philosophy as, as their reason for rejecting creation a priori. And then they would say, and what is the best naturalistic explanation for life? Evolution. Hmm. I'd actually agree with them on that on that point. If you if you exclude the supernatural, evolution's kind of the best thing you've got going for you. Not that it's good, but right. it's the best, it's the best you can come up with. Right. So it's the only game in town, so to speak. If there is no uh, designer and creator. Uh, then evolution is the best theory available that explains the wide variety of, of biodiversity and things like that. If if God is excluded, uh, and of course, I know there are theistic evolutionists that throws a monkey wrench into this whole discussion. I want to keep that away uh, for a moment there. Okay, so in your in your opinion, then uh, from the the secularist perspective, what is the as they see it the strongest? data point in favor of the evolutionary perspective. So from the perspective of someone who believes it's true, sure, there are some points that are debated and they're, you know, they're tweaking this and tweaking that. And there are some issues where people kind of disagree as to how that all works out or the mechanisms, uh, whether natural selection and and genetic mutation are sufficient mechanisms uh, to drive the process. But what is the strongest data point that most evolutionists will appeal to and say, this is really the strongest piece of, of data that we have that strongly gives the impression that evolution really, it's the best explanation for, for every, you know, for this entire biodiversity that we see in the world today. Um, a, a, a number of the scientists, I think, is if, if genetics is not their field, they would probably say genetics. And maybe okay. even that where that is that field, they would say that the, the fact that, that organisms can be classified in a nested hierarchy, both in terms of physiology and in terms of genetics. Okay. So that's exactly what we'd expect if evolution were true. And then the ones that are a little more epistemologically astute would say, because we're here, because we're here. And the alternative is unthinkable. And and that's and, and there have been some that have admitted that. Um, Lewontin, I think, was the one who said, we must not allow a divine foot in the door. He says, yes, we accept- right. I remember that famous you know, yeah. quote. All right. When, when, um, okay. So you have just as you have like popularizers, people who hold to evolution, they popularize the view. They're not really kind of professional scientists. You also have Christians who are trying to defend the faith. They're not experts, but they're popularizers or they're just Christians just trying to defend the Christian faith. And so, uh, they'll pick up a book, uh, maybe by answers in Genesis or maybe some Christian perspective where, uh, when they hear an evolutionist say, evolution is true and they point to the fossils to support their view many christians their knee-jerk reaction is oh you've never found the missing link right you you know you've never you know um when when christians say that i often hear evolutionists say you're just ignorant there's plenty of evidence in the fossils for the evolutionary perspective what is that evidence that they appeal to? Not to say that it's legitimate evidence because we understand the importance of interpretation of the data, but what is the specific thing in the area of fossils that everyone says, look, it's right here, man. What's your problem? Well, with regard to human evolution, there are certain, um, we, 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 we find about something on the order of 8,000 remains of humans or creatures that look like they're human anyway. Okay. And, uh, and they would say that there is a progression that, that some are more ape-like and some are more like modern homo sapiens. 
And I'm happy to talk about some of the details of that if you're interested, because sure. uh, the, the most common view now is that uh, Lucy, which is an Australopithecus, Australopithecus afarensis, that's supposed to be uh, a human ancestor, and that's supposed okay. to have evolved into Homo habilis, and that's supposed to have evolved into uh, Homo erectus, and then um, Heidelberg man, and then branched off into the Neanderthals. They used to think Neanderthals perhaps were our ancestor, but I don't think anybody believes that anymore. That they mm -hmm. think that that's probably a separate uh, shoot. But uh, with the exception of the first two, Australopithecus, the Lucy and Homo habilis, which I, I, I think is kind of a, a junk taxon. It has some okay. fragments of apes in it, some fragments of humans, and you, you get a new, it really is an ape man, but it, it never existed. If you see what I'm saying, it's parts from both, sure. um, but primarily non-humans, primarily non-humans in the Homo habilis. Uh, the other ones, Homo erectus, um, uh, Heidel, Homo Heidel, heidelbergensis, uh, those are all humans. And I'm, I, so, I, I'm, I'm impressed that you could pronounce all this. It sounds like you're speaking in tongues, well, man. I'm, like, <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not a paleoanthropologist. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing them correctly. So they take sound it right. You could fool okay. me. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the, the good news is I know people who are experts sure. um, on either human anatomy. Dave, David Minton, he passed away last year. He's a good friend of mine. He's an expert on human anatomy and ape anatomy. Hmm. And he was, he, he taught me how to, how to see the differences and so sure. on. And I, I read other other works as well. Uh, Dr. Uh, Martin Marvin, pardon me, Dr. Marvin Lubinow, who's got a book called Bones of Contention. This, this is a great resource. And it is, um, I've never met um, Professor Lubinow, but he's, um, he's really done his homework in terms of the fossil evidence. Uh, mm. so, so all of these, Homo erectus, um, Homer Neanderthalus, they, they really all should be classified as Homo sapiens. And if they want to put a subspecies after it, that's okay. That, that These would basically be different ethnicities of human so beings. You, so you said Neanderthals. So people often think of like cavemen, like these sorts of people, like, are, are, well, these sorts of creatures. Are they, did you say that they're human or you say there's, some, there's something different? No, they're human beings. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, people talk about cavemen. Well, Sometimes men lived in caves and <laughs> there's, people, there's some people today who live underground. So, I mean, you know, that, that's okay. Uh, I live close to NORAD. So, you okay. know, it's a mountain where there's people that are, they're all cavemen technically. Uh, Lot lived in a cave for a little while, right? According to the, yeah. according to the scriptures. So people did that sometimes. Now the Neanderthals, those are human beings and most, most people recognize that. Now there has been a recent push back to say, well, they're, they're a different species, but nonetheless, they had, they buried their dead. They had, they had culture, uh, you know, burial of the dead is, is an indication that you expect to be resurrected. So that's an indication that they had religion, whether they had knowledge of the true religion, we don't know, but um, these are human beings. There's evidence that they interbred with what we, what we call modern uh, homo sapiens. Okay. And, uh, they lived at the same time. So they, they can't be an ancestor because they lived at the same time. So that, that, is pretty sure. well shot down any any uh, chance of them being an, an ancestor, but most uh, most paleoanthropologists would say no. These are people. These are these are human beings. Whether they want to put them in as a different species of humans, I think is a bad idea. But um, but many of them classify them as Homo sapiens, Neander, Neanderthal basis or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. so it's a subspecies. But they have all the characteristics of humans. Okay. And what are the characteristics? Of, well. Humans differ from apes in terms of our skeletal features, because that's usually all that, that we can find is the skeleton. And even then, you know, I talk about 8,000 human remains. That could be that could be a tooth. Okay, the idea, you know, rarely do we find a complete, fully articulated skeleton. We do find some. 
and Neanderthals are one of the most common that we find. We think that they lived uh, shortly after the flood year during the ice age, which we believe was produced by the Genesis flood. Okay. But uh, their characteristics are human and not simian, not ape. Uh, what, the characteristics of an ape, several. Let's just talk about the skull. They, apes tend to have a smaller cranial capacity, although that's not definitive because the range of, of your head size for human beings is like a factor of three. It's like 700 cubic centimeters to like 2,100 cubic centimeters. So there's a range in human beings even today. Uh, mm -hmm. Neanderthals fall in that range. Their average cranial capacity is larger than ours by about 10%. They had bigger brains than we do which yeah. is I think, uh, kind of interesting. Yeah, but their head shape was a little different because they tended yeah. to have the, the back portion of their skull was a little bit longer and they had kind of like a, like a bun almost on, on, their, on their skull in the back. And, mm. and that's a little different from some of the other uh, groups that we see. So, yeah. but brain size, Neanderthals are human. Um, the way the face is shaped, we have a kind of a flat face. If you look at it from the side, you know, from the top, you know, our face is kind of flat, whereas an apes is kind of kind of pushes forward. Their their jaws go forward. Yeah. Uh, one really distinctive feature is this: the uh, top part of your nose, the lower part of your nose, cartilage. The top part is bone. Apes do not have this. Humans do, and so I can tell you immediately when looking at a skull. If, if this part, see, sometimes part of the skull is missing, and you don't, you don't know. Okay. But if, the, if the skull's there, I can tell you if it's human or ape. Just I look at this, and I remember apes can't. Wear glasses. That's how you remember that. <laughs> Do they look like this? Yeah. <laughs> they don't have this. They don't have this bridge right here. And so, and see, I have a fairly long one, which indicates I'm far more evolved than than most people. <laughs> so that's how that works. Um, the way our teeth is is different. Apes have huge molars, and human beings have relatively small molars. The shape that our teeth makes is different. Human beings, it's like a parabola. Whereas with apes, it's like a U where it becomes parallel on the mm -hmm. sides. And so you can tell by the by the shape of the teeth, whether it's human and the type of teeth that you find, whether it's human or not. And that's just yeah. the skull. We talk about the, the other features, the rib cage, human beings, our rib cage is kind of vertical on the side and then it curves at the top. Uh, apes have kind of a Christmas tree, a cone-shaped uh, rib cage. Uh, Lucy, yeah. cone-shaped, just typical ape. Uh, the way our hip bones are structured, they kind of they kind of point forward, and that allows us to walk upright. Whereas apes have them splayed out to the side, and Lucy's are splayed out to the side, just like any other ape. Um, the the uh, we tend to have longer legs relative to the rest of you know to our trunk than apes have. Uh, the angle at which our our shoulders are designed. A lot of apes, especially if they're prime, if they are um, arboreal, like like Lucy was. Lucy was a tree dwelling primate, and right. so her shoulder bones are designed differently so that she can hang for a long period of time. Maybe when you're a little kid and you're hanging on the in the playground on monkey bars, and after a while your shoulder kind of hurts because we're not built for that. But Lucy's designed for that, and we have straight fingers, straight phalanges, whereas Lucy had curved uh, phalanges, yeah. which is useful for for climbing yeah. and and things sure. like that. So we have very different designs. Uh, our feet, our feet are designed for walking upright. Apes have often almost an opposable big toe. It's almost like a second set of hands, not quite, but uh, so, and Lucy's are typical. Very good for playing video games. Yeah, right? you, can play, you can play two sets. You can play yourself one with these, <laughs> <laughs> but probably not, but uh, you get the idea. So those are just, those are some of the traits that, and when we look at um, Australopithecus, all the traits of an ape, 100%. Okay. The, the, the way this skull goes down, the lack of the, the nasal protrusion, the teeth, the way they're shaped, the uh, rib cage, everything, the hip structure, the feet, everything is, is simian. Right. Everything is ape-like. Um, all these other categories, Neanderthals, Homo erectus, he Heidelberg man, 
um, and modern Homo sapiens, of course, hmm. all have the human teeth, the human face, and so on. Now, okay. Neanderthals were a little different. Uh, they had some differences, but they're all they're all within the range of modern humans. They tended to have extended brow ridges, and so you know their, their brows right. went out a little bit. But I've I've seen people today that that have that. That's I had a substitute history teacher who one time he I mean he he could have easily been a Neanderthal. There's no doubt. <laughs> He's um, like, I was there. <laughs> right. He's an old dude. Hey, so, okay, so what, what I – oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't, I didn't want to interrupt your thought. If you wanted to finish well, it. Okay, I'm just, I'm just going to point out that Neanderthals do have some, some differences in their skull from what most people have today, from what is typical today, including the extended brow ridges, the, the sloping of the forehead, and the larger um, back part. One, one speculation is that they might have had a larger uh, cerebellum than we have today, which is yeah. coordination, things like that. And uh, and they, they were a little stockier too. They, they, were, okay. they were big people and they, they would tend to be very, very strong. And we think probably pretty muscular too. And yeah. they also tended to suffer from rickets. Um, and, and that tends to distort the shape of the bones somewhat. Okay. And but we think that's because they lived during the ice age in a part of the world that didn't get a lot of sunshine at the time. And so that, that could mm. be responsible for that. And then these other, but all, all of those features, by the way, modern human beings can have any of those. It's just what would be unusual today is to have all of them in one person. Okay. So Neanderthals, for example, tend to have a large uh, protrusion in their on their nose. They had, tend to have a recessed chin. Again, you'll get that. People today will get that. It's just they don't tend to have all those traits combined. So they're unquestionably human. Everything about them, the, the skull, the um spinal cord, the rib, rib cage, everything about them is 100% human. And so it is with, with um, Homo erectus and these other ones. Hmm. So now, okay, so what's up with the, I mean, I hear a lot of people say, look, if you look at the kind of genetically speaking, we share much in common with chimpanzees, like a certain percentage is like 90 something percent or something like that. And a lot of people, at least on the popular level, think that that's actually a very strong indication that there's a, there's a relation there. Um, how would you interact with, uh, with, that, with that idea? Okay. Uh, first, the number is wrong. The number that's commonly cited, 99% or 97% okay. genetically similar to a chimpanzee. That is wrong. Um, the, the, the reason they get those kind of numbers is they take the sections of the chimp DNA that are similar to human DNA and they line them up. And so it's, it's biased from the start under the assumption that we're related to them. But if you, if you look at it more objectively, it's more like 80%. Okay. And, uh, and there's a range. It's, I've seen estimates as, from creation scientists who know what they're doing and, and studied this as low as 70% up to 89%. So, okay. so 80, let's say 80%. That's generally still pretty high. So I can still see yeah. the, the, I can see the assuming they know what they're talking about. I can see the force of look how much percentage that we have the same with, with sure. them. So. Although if you think about it, that's a lot of, that means there's tw we're 20% different, which okay. means in less than 4 million years, you have to get a lot of mutations. And, and in fact, that's one of the challenges is that there hasn't been enough time mm -hmm. for even, even if I grant the secularists, the, uh, the, you know, the millions of years, there hasn't been enough right. time in their view to generate the number of mutations that distinguish us from chimpanzees. But the more, the more important issue and the more foundational one is that it is a flaw in reasoning to assume that similarity, even a nested hierarchy indicates common descent. Sure. Because a lot of things occur in a nested hierarchy and are not the result of common descent. Right. Um, I, I'm, in fact, I'm doing a series of articles on the website now uh, on, on particles, quantum, quantum particles and quantum physics. Okay. And 
they fall into certain families. There are leptons and there are exactly six types of leptons and so on. And then there are quarks and there are exactly six types of quarks. And these both fall under the category of fermions. And you can classify quantum particles in a taxonomic tree, just like you would organisms. And yet nobody, nobody argues that quantum particles gradually evolved over millions of years. Mm -hmm. Now, unlike animals, quantum particles can immediately change. They can decay into other particles, but there's no, yeah. there's no evolution to it. It's not, you know, there's, there's electrons and there's muons. Muons are exactly like electrons, except they're 207 times heavier. And it's not like they slowly gained weight over millions of years. It's just, that's, that's the kind of particles that God created in this universe. And so a nested hierarchy just means it, it, it can mean common descent, but it can also mean that there, that the creator has some sense of, of logic and orderliness. And I believe that God created uh, categories of things so that we could classify them. Because if he didn't, if God made everything unique, science would be impossible. We couldn't understand anything about the universe. If you think about it, all of our knowledge is about finding patterns in mm. things, especially in science. Science would not be possible if everything were unique. The second thing, too, to, to remember, because this the secularists will sometimes point out, well, not only do chimps look anatomically similar to humans in the sense that they have two arms and two legs and two eyes and so on. Mm -hmm. But um, their genetics are similar, but the genetics are what determines the traits, right? Yeah. You, you know, the, the reason that we have hands like this is because we got genes to make hands like this. Wouldn't it stand to reason that other organisms that ha have hands something like this would have similar genes? Mm -hmm. So the fact that there that we have a nested hierarchy and that it's it, it roughly correlates between the physiology and the genetics just means genes code yeah. for traits. Now, you don't have to be a creationist or evolutionist to believe that genes code for traits. There's good science to confirm that. Sure. So I would expect as a creationist, and, and this, this would be my counter argument to the, to the evolutionary case that I made earlier, okay. that we have this nested hierarchy. That's what creationists would expect too. And mm. so if, if both models make the same prediction, you can't say, ah, and the prediction's right, therefore my model's true. Well, the other model right. makes exactly the same prediction. So okay. similarity doesn't imply uh, common descent. It, mm. it does, in my mind, it implies a common designer, and it, the fact that certain certain patterns work well. I'm a computer programmer. That's one of the things that I do. And if you look at my programs, you'll find sections of code that are nearly identical. Not because this program evolved from that one, but because I wrote both of them, and I know this code works well for doing sure. that thing. And there's there's certain things that all life forms do. You know, all all the animal life forms they all have mitochondria in their in their mm -hmm. cells, and so and that's that acts like a powerhouse. And well, you know, we'd expect that to be similar because it's, it's doing basically the same thing in everything, and so we'd expect that. And so the 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 similarities and differences that we see in nature are perfectly compatible with creation, and I would argue are are better explained by creation than an evolutionary view. You gave me flashbacks of middle school science with mitochondria. I remember studying. It's the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> That's right. Yep. All right. Well, when we deal with um, evolution and we think of the mechanisms that drive evolution, I know that um, many people believe that it's um, natural selection and genetic mutation. Is that still uh, the, the two mechanisms that most evolutionists believe drive the evolutionary process? Or has many have many people rejected that uh, those two mechanisms are sufficient uh, to explain evolution. How does that all work? And then finally, if you could explain this issue of genetic mutation, I know that I've heard many people within apologetic literature who kind of provide counter arguments to evolutionary perspective that um, genetic mutations uh, don't really help the organism very much. And so how does that all play into, into this, uh, into the evolutionary uh, process? If you could speak okay. 
Okay. So well, a mutation is a mistake in your DNA. And it can it can happen when the, the DNA is being copied, right? So you have you have mechanisms in your cells that yeah. that uh, when the cells split, they they duplicate the DNA. It's amazing. Mm. And I, 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 you can see pictures of this happening. It's absolutely yeah. astonishing, the mechanism. And so um, a mutation then is when uh, one of the, the base pairs gets flipped. So, so DNA, it looks like a twisted ladder. And, mm. and the rungs on this ladder are four different nucleotide base pairs. And, they, and, and we, we abbreviate them by one of the four letters, A, G, right. C, and T. So all the information to make you is spelled out in a language that most of us can't read. But it's, four, it's a four-letter language, and the four letters are organized into words that are three letters each, mm -hmm. and that allows you to produce something like uh, 20 different amino acids. Okay. And amino acids make up proteins, and then proteins um, work, and they, they do what they do. You're made of you're yeah. made of proteins basically, and some of them have the ability to move, and it it's all very astonishing. It's so, incredible. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. And in fact, um, I think it was the Discovery Institute that put out a video. Um, unlocking the mysteries of life where they showed mm -hmm. the inner workings of a cell. And I'll tell you, you see that, you see that video, there's a protein in, in your cells that carries another protein and it walks. <laughs> it's it, incredible. It is amazing. It is amazing. And, and I, I wish that every, every student of science would see that and, and think through that. Because that is amazingly well designed. It's an, and just a sidestep. It's just amazing to, that we're able to see that, and people can look at that and be like, eh, "Random evolution." <laughs> it's right. just like what? Yeah, uh, I know it sounds very simplistic, but when people say, "Well, you know, the evidence of God is all around," look outside your window. But in a very simplistic way, uh, look outside your window or look at the human body as generic responses to people who believe that everything is the product of kind of a a random process. I think there's still power to that simplicity that even from an apologetics perspective, if you're not up on the science, uh, that's still a very relevant response to give within the context I mean, of your of your conversations with people. I just wanted to throw that out there. It's incredible yeah. if you know the details, but even if you don't, it's still amazing. It really is. It, yeah. We are remarkably well designed. We are fear, we are truly fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen. So, but uh, well, what, the first part of your question, I wanted to get back to that, but I forgot what you asked. The um, I was talking about uh, genetic mutation and how you well, said is that, that still they, the mechanism? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that still the mechanism? I think it is. I think okay. the majority of evolutionists would say mutations and natural selection. That's what it is. Some have disputed that. Uh, Michael Behe mm -hmm. uh, wrote his book, uh, Darwin's Black Box, which is a wonderful read. And the interesting thing about Behe is he, he, he is an evolutionist. He believes in common descent, but mm -hmm. he recognizes that mutations, and natural selection are not going to do the trick. And right. he, he gives some devastating arguments in his book. And he, you kind of wonder, what, why, why are you still an evolutionist? But uh, he still is, as far as I can tell. And he didn't like creationists very well, from what I can tell as well. But in any case, he, he, the book is a, a very good read. I highly recommend it, okay. uh, even though I wouldn't agree with everything he says. But sure, he makes sure. devastating arguments about the, the irreducible complexity of cells, the fact mm -hmm. that certain parts have to work together. Uh, immediately for the whole thing to work. If, if So there, there is no last step because without that last step, the system fails and therefore it cannot come about in a piecemeal fashion. And the interesting thing is that was the one criterion uh, Darwin gave that would falsify his model. Hmm. He said if it can be demonstrated that any of these, any of the mechanisms, any of the organs of the body could co could not come about in a piecemeal fashion. This is my theory would absolutely break down. And we now know hmm. that. 
we now know that's the case. Darwin was honest enough to admit that. He just didn't know of any at the time. Sure, so, sure. But so, yeah, okay. So getting back to, um, so mutations, mistake, top, copying mistakes. So instead of an A here, a, a G goes there instead. Okay. And that causes a different, it, well, in some cases, it causes a different amino acid to be produced. And so the protein is wrong. Uh, there is some redundancy built into the code. And so sometimes the last letter, it can be an A or G and you get the same amino acid, for example. So sometimes, sometimes mutations do nothing, um, but right. other times they will change the protein that's produced. And sometimes the new protein still has enough functionality that it still works, but maybe not quite as well. And so mutations are responsible for a lot of the different diseases we have, sickle cell anemia, where your, your cells don't, they kind of develop into these little banana shaped things and they don't carry oxygen nearly as well. You, right. you know, you still survive with, with treatment, but it, it's not good for you. Um, other conditions, uh, the, the, your blood clotting mechanism, there's a, there's a mutation that can cause that not to form properly. And so you have to be very careful because this, you know, the slightest scratch, it doesn't clot the way it should. And so that's a problem. Uh, so that's, that's what mutations do. The evolutionists like to talk about positive mutations, mutations okay. that, that make an organism more likely to survive. And, you know, creationists haven't always been as clear as we could be on um, how, we, how we would respond to that, because I've heard some creationists say, well, there are no good mutations. Um, I, I, th I think we have to be careful about that, because okay. there are mutations that under certain circumstances actually help the organism survive. Sure. That can happen. There's a mutation in uh, H. pylori. H. pylori is a bacterium that causes stomach ulcers, and that's unpleasant. So you go to your doctor and you get an antibiotic, and the antibiotic's harmless to you. But the, this bacterium has an enzyme in him that he produces as part of his system that when it contacts that antibiotic, it converts it into a poison. The poison kills the bacterium and you feel better. Okay. There is a mutated form of H. pylori that lacks the ability to produce that enzyme. At least he can't produce very much of it. And so when the antibiotic goes into him, it's not nearly as, nearly as toxic because he lacks the ability to convert the antibiotic into a poison. And so he survives, but he survives because he's got a damaged gene. And in that particular environment, that actually helps them. And so that, that's why you need to take all of your antibiotic even when you feel better because you've sure. killed off all the normal ones and the mutated ones are left. And if you right. don't finish them off, they'll reproduce. And now you've got a resistant strain. Mm. And so hospitals tend to have resistant strains of, of bacteria for that reason because they prescribe antibiotics. Mm. But in the natural world, those mutated ones don't compete very well with the normal bacteria because they are missing. They're missing some, uh, you know, some instructions that are part of their system. So whether a mutation is beneficial or not really depends on the environment in which the organism is placed. Okay. And there are a few that I would call helpful mutations in the sense that they improve sure. survival. Value. But here's my, here's my point. Here's my counter. Okay. They, those cannot drive evolution okay. because in order to take something like a microbe and through descent and mutations and natural selection, turn it into a person in order to do that, you'd have to add new genetic information into the organism. We, we have genetic information that bacteria do not have. We have right. genetic information to make bones and eyes and hair and things like that. And bacteria can't make those things because they don't have those instructions. So if evolution were true, at some point, you'd have to gain brand new information. And as far as we know, mutations do not do that. Even the ones that are occasionally helpful, like the, the one that helped the bacteria to become resistant to antibiotics, it did that by removing a little bit of information. Okay. And so you can't, you can't get from here up to here, mm -hmm. just more information by removing information. So sure. mutations, whether they're helpful or not, are always in the wrong direction 
to make evolution happen. Hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, then let's let's make some apologetic application for folks. So I'm uh, I am an evolutionist. I am a professor. So assuming that I know what I'm talking about. Okay. This is not my area, um, but um, let's just pretend I am a PhD scientist. I hold to a naturalistic evolution as a scientific theory, along with my philosophical perspective that that contextualizes that. Uh, why isn't evolution along the lines that we've been talking about, why isn't it a viable position? So perhaps you can now provide a an apologetic response that some of our uh, Christian listeners can take. And you know what, that's really a great piece of information that I could use in conversation with my friends and things like that, or a professor that I might be in conversation with. Uh, why isn't evolution, as we've discussed it, um, a, not a viable position? A lot of different ways I can answer that. Okay. Uh, one, I, one I might point out is I would say, well, uh, you're married. Do you, do you love your wife and kids? Maybe he says, yeah, I love my wife and kids. But in your view, aren't those just bags of chemicals? Uh, I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're just an accident of nature, right? They're not created in God's sure. image or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so that real quick response can just point to the fact that, well, if you love your, if you love your, um, uh, your wife, you're really kind of just giving really an, a, a, an internal critique of his perspective. If what you say is true, what's love, right? That's a, that's good to kind of hit the, the heart, so to speak. Right. Um, so, okay. So that's kind of a very simple way that we can uh, respond. How about some of the, the more, uh, combating the science, so to speak, from his perspective with with what we would call good science, uh, with proper presuppositions? How would we engage the evolutionists from that perspective? The first thing I would do, uh, I might use what I just mentioned previously, but sure. I, other than that, I mean, there's several options open to me, but I'm always going to start with an internal critique. And okay. so if you like science, I'm going to say, that's great. I like science too. I've got a PhD in it, but you know, science involves induction. How do you account for induction? Hmm. Now, I, as a Christian, can make sense of induction, the idea that I, there are patterns in nature that God has imposed on nature, and I can discover them because God's given my mind the capacity to be yeah. rational. He's given me senses that can observe the world and, and give me uh, a truthful view of the way things are within certain limitations, of course. And so science makes sense in my worldview, but, but you, Professor, claim to be an evolutionist, and you're an atheistic evolutionist. There's no God, so how do you know that your mind has the capacity to be rational? Mm. Surely you're not simply using your mind to assume that your mind is, is rational, because that wouldn't that be circular? Yeah. And Sure. And, and how do you account for induction? How do you know that the sun is going to rise tomorrow? Because all science is predicated on this idea that there are patterns in nature. Why would you expect that? Mm -hmm. And he might say, well, in my past experience, it's, it's worked out pretty well for me. Sure. And I'll say, yes, but that's irrelevant to the future unless you already believed in induction, unless you already mm -hmm. believe the future reflects the past. And so you're, you're effectively using the scientific method as your justification for the scientific method. And that, that's circular. That begs the question. And so I want to know if you have an independent mechanism to to account for induction. Now, that's all very heady, but it's very powerful because sure. the fact that, you know, the, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so if you have someone who rejects God, you've got someone who cannot account for knowledge. And so mm. uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask him how he counts for knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that always works. Now, it may not, he may not convert, but he's not going to be able to give a rational response to that because there isn't one. And God yeah. tells us there isn't one. So that's why I know that so, works. So. Your response to an evolutionist is not so much to our, I mean, you can talk about the specific data points and challenge the interpretation, but really the heart of the issue is that the reason why we believe that they are interpreting the data incorrectly is not so much having to do with the data itself. It's the presuppositions they bring to the data. 
it's that. And so instead of responding to the evolutionists with throwing science and he's throwing science at you and you're throwing science, you're actually going straight to the broader framework. So you're talking about things like the uniformity of nature, which what we spoke about at the beginning, some of those important presuppositions of science itself, which worldview makes what we're doing when we talk about the quote facts make sense. Is that, is that what you're saying? So you're kind of yeah. refuting his science by stepping back and attacking his philosophy. I'm pointing out that his science is based on my worldview and not his. His worldview can't make sense of it. He's he's trespassing. He's standing on God's ground, and he needs to either get saved or, or get off God's property. <laughs> get, get saved or go. <laughs> like you know? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm happy to talk about the details of science, but you see a lot of people think that the way you reason with somebody like that is you give them all kinds of scientific evidence. Mm. But if, if in the situation you're talking about, you're talking about a, a, a science professor who has studied a lot of the evidence, which me, which tells me he probably knows a lot of the evidence. The one thing he doesn't need is more evidence. He 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 knows that, and he sh and he should be a Christian. He should be a consistent biblical creationist Christian. He's not. Why is it? Because he doesn't know enough evidence. Probably not. If he's a professor on that topic, he probably knows a lot of the evidence. The problem is his philosophy. He's interpreting it wrong, and he hasn't thought through the fact that his own philosophy is self-defeating. That if it were true, science wouldn't be possible. It wouldn't make sense to trust our senses if they're just the product of evolution. He says, "Well, our senses conveyed survival value." You know, you don't know that. I mean, it could be that our, our sensory experiences are simply a byproduct of photosynthesis. How do you know you're not a blade of grass and all your sensory perceptions are just the byproduct of photosynthesis and photosynthesis sure. does have survival value. So you see it's but that's just kind of this all what you think is reality just goes along with it. How do you know that? Mm -hmm. And a consistent evolutionist cannot answer that question because there, there isn't any answer apart from the Christian worldview. And I would like to also point out for folks who might be listening to you, you're not, this is not a word game. Okay. You're not shifting the focus of where, what's most important, the, you know, the evidence, right? You are asking a, a worldview question and it's very, well, it's impossible to talk about science independent of a broader worldview. We can pretend that worldview considerations aren't important, right? Like someone might listen to what you just said, Dr. Lyon, say, oh, here he goes trying to make us doubt the, you know, the existence of the external world by asking all these skeptical questions. But really what you're doing is, is really just forcing the person to give an account of reality, which, by the way, provides the intelligible context for them to do the science that they're doing. So you're really going to a foundation. It's not just punting off to these hard philosophical questions, but whether we like it or not, those hard philosophical questions can't be swept under the rug because they affect how we do science, how we do all these other things. So yeah. I just want to point that out to folks. It's not a shift to this kind of ambiguous, hard philosophical questioning. It really is making the unbeliever as well as ourselves, what Van Til said, epistemologically self-conscious. We need to be aware of those broader philosophies we bring to the scientific debate itself. And so I think that's a great point that you uh, pointed out appealing to uh, uniformity of nature and these broader kind of presuppositions that we yeah. bring to the data. And, and let me add too, mo most Christians do apologetics as if Romans 1 is wrong. Yes. Yes. They, they think that, that the unbeliever says, I don't believe in God. And they take him at his word and they say, oh, okay. So I need to present evidence to you. To Romans 1 tells us everybody knows God exists and they actively suppress that truth and unrighteousness. And so what I try to do, and the reason I'm asking questions like that I don't have to give him new evidence for God. He's got all, he's a professor of science. He's got a lot of evidence sure. for God. Sure. Um, I, what I want to do is expose his suppressed knowledge of God 
by pointing out that his behavior shows that he really does know God. He just mm -hmm. doesn't want to know God. Yeah. That's the problem. And so what I'm doing is I'm exposing the, the inconsistency in his thinking, because I believe Romans 1 is true. And I act on that in the way that I do apologetics. Right. And of course, this is a much broader conversation. So suppose you attack someone's presuppositions and say, how do you account for A, B, and C? The unbeliever, a more philosophically astute, more philosophically informed unbeliever may have his answers. And of course, the conversation will go deeper depending on who you're speaking with. So I want folks to, to understand that your passing comments here as to how you would engage their perspective is not just this hand waving. You, you're willing to go into the weeds uh, as the situation calls for it. But generally speaking, our response to evolutionists, our response to Muslims, our response to any form of atheism is really to um, ask them what ground are they standing on. It's really to go for the worldview issue, not just endless debates over the specifics, although that does have its part. Am I mm -hmm. correct in summarizing it there? Yeah. And of course, I'm happy. You know, if he wants to talk about genetics, I'll, I'll do yeah. my best. I'm not a geneticist, but I'll, I know enough to know that there sure. are problems with the secular view. If he wants to talk about fossils, I'm very happy to talk about those because those are very consistent with creation, especially when it regards to human evolution. The the picture, you know, of the chimp and the like you have on the, you know, on the on the around the window there, that that parade, the evolution parade of right. getting bigger, you know, more human. The only place you'll find that is in textbooks. You will not find that in the fossil record. And knowledgeable evolutionists know that. Uh, you know, the, we find we find very distinctive human beings in the fossil record, and we find very distinctive apes. The only way you can make an ape man is to take parts of a human and parts of an ape, which has been done. That was what Pilt, Piltdown Man, that was a fraud. It was a human skull cap and an ape jaw where the mm -hmm. teeth had been filed down to make it look more human and uh, and they've been put together. So, But but in terms of the actual fossils that we find, uh, when you have well-articulated specimen, now sometimes you have a few broken fragments. You can't make anything out of that. I mean, they'll try, but you can't get any good data out of that. In terms of the fossils that we have, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, and so on. These are all these are humans, and then you have clear uh, apes like uh, Australopithecus, and so on. So the the fossil evidence is consistent with what I'd expect. But I, I do like to uh, eventually, and it, and it'd be okay to talk about some of those things. But I don't want to remain there. That might be a good way to open the door to get the person talking about you know just kind of thinking through his beliefs. But ultimately, I want to go for the Achilles heel and point out that. Um, all of his other uh, assumptions that he makes in terms of the reliability of science mm -hmm. depend on a creation outlook. They depend on the Bible being true and God being who the Bible says he is. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's always what I'm going to go for. I'm always going to be presuppositional in my response. I'm happy to use evidence and talk about it. But more as a door opener than anything else, more to sure. get him thinking about things. Sure. And I'm glad you said that you're willing to go into the evidence because I know critics of presuppositionalism will often say something to the effect that uh, presuppositional methodology is for the intellectually lazy. You guys don't want to dig into the weeds of the data. You're, you know, you're going over, and it's so ridiculous. We just recognize that it's useless in endlessly debating the data points. Yeah, we can debate them, and they're important. But I mean, the person's soul is at stake. I'm not going to debate for five hours, uh, you know, about genetics, you know, just so that the person could interpret the data in light of their presuppositions, and then we're right back at square one. So it's not intellectually lazy, really. I think it's intellectually deep. And that notice the difference, Doctor Lyle, when you see, and, and again, this might not be, and I'm not making a broad brush statement here, but when you see evidentialist or classicalist debate, they're often in the weeds of the data. But it's the presuppositionalists that when they're talking with the unbeliever, they're talking about the very nature of reality itself. There's a completely different level of focus 
in the discussion. And I think that's that's very, uh, very telling. And it's, and it's what the debate's really about. The debate right. really isn't about the data. It's about how the data should be interpreted. That's right. And that's a worldview issue. And so if we're going to if we're going to be logical in the way that we debate these things, it's going to have to be a worldview issue. Gotcha. The, the details can can be part of that. That's fine. But sure. but the, the worldview needs to be addressed. Right. And the issue isn't to show how smart we are by, right. you know, look how many books I read, look how many scientists I can quote, things like that. All super important and have their their uh, use. But ultimately, we're talking about eternal matters. Well, we're up at the top of the hour here. Uh, Dr. Lyle, is it OK if we can go through some questions here from the audience? Sure. All right. Thank you so much. Our first question is from Marlon. Uh, Marlon asks, is there any reason to suggest that morals can be rooted in evolution? So for example, someone will say, I don't need God to explain morality. Evolution explains morality just fine. How would you speak to that? Yeah, people will, I've certainly heard evolutionists try and account for morality from an evolutionary worldview, but I've never seen one that succeeds. Okay. Uh, about the best that they can do is they can say, um, well, it's, it's something that, morality is something that evolved, that helped our species to survive. And, but then at that point, they're confusing behavior with morality. Behavior mm -hmm. is what we do. Morality is what we ought to do. And I'll grant the evolutionist, for the sake of argument, I'll grant that he might be able to explain that, that evolution might explain what we do. But it, it, can't, in, it can't introduce an ought. You know, it's, why, why should I behave this way? Well, it would benefit right. the species. Okay, but why should I benefit the species? That's what I want to know. Well, because you are once. So... I, I can understand being concerned about myself, but why should I care? After I'm dead, was it going to matter whether the species continues? No. And so you, you, there's no way to get an ought out of what is. And I think only the Christian worldview solves that because we would define ought as that which mm -hmm. God commends. And, uh, and what we shouldn't do is what God disapproves of, that which brings his wrath and so on. Yeah. So I don't think the evolutionists can account for morality. They can account for feelings of morality, perhaps, mm -hmm. but genuine uh, ethical right and wrong. They can't make sense of it. There's no yeah, right in, a, in an evolutionary universe. Sure. Yeah. That's a good question, Marlon. I, I think it also makes uh, a confusion between, and I think Dr. Lyle was getting at this, a confusion between moral ontology and moral epistemology. Let's suppose that evolution kind of, and morality is related there. All it shows is that if evolution were true, we've come to know certain moral truths through an evolutionary process, but it really doesn't speak as to whether those morals that we come to know actually are ontologically the case. Um, so it really it confuses the on moral ontology with moral epistemology. So it really doesn't answer the question. Um, all right. The sire asks the question, uh, that, that's his name is Vinny, his screen name, his screen names confuse me. Uh, the sire or Vinny uh, says, what Old Testament scholar would you recommend? So when someone maybe is studying Genesis or you know, they're looking for a commentary on the Old Testament, maybe relating to, you know, the first five books of the Bible or something like that. Who would you recommend? Since there's a lot of people out there that we want to be cautious of, they have good stuff, but you want to be careful. Um, who are some top scholars if, if some come to mind? If you want like an Old Testament scholar who is a language expert, a Hebrew expert, uh, Stephen Boyd, he's, he's the best. He's great. Um, he's retired now, but he's got a lot of good stuff out there. Um, so he's very good. Um, Henry Morris, although his his uh, formal education wasn't in 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 biblical studies, he's a hydrological engineer. But nonetheless, he wrote an, an excellent commentary on Genesis called the Genesis Record. I wouldn't agree with everything in it, but it's a it's a nice start. And it um, and I think and other creationists have built on that since then. So um, there are other. I'm sure there are many other Bible scholars too. But those are those are ones that come to mind off the top of my head. 
Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are other, but um, when, when Bonson went through the Old Testament, when he went through Leviticus and Deuteronomy, boy, he, he knew those books well because he understood God's law and how that applies. Right. And uh, so he would be, he, he was kind of an expert on everything. So <laughs> yeah, he would be good as well. All right. Very good. Um, and I'm going in order here. So he's got another question here. Uh, he says, are you familiar with Dr. Heiser's view on the pre-Adamite race? If you are familiar with them, do you have any criticisms? Okay. I think so. I want to make sure I'm thinking of the right person because there are a few um, different views on pre-Adamite races. Okay. I think he's uh, thinking Michael Heiser, maybe. Could Unless be. It's a different Heiser. Yeah, it could be. In any case, mm -hmm. there are a few of those and they all have the same flaw. <laughs> They're not biblical. Uh, I mean, human beings were made on the same day as animals, probably later in the day. And um, okay. God brought the animals to uh, to uh, Adam to to name them. But yeah, there's no evidence of a pre-Adamite race uh, or, or any race other than human beings. We do find variations within a kind uh, in the fossils that we find. Um, again, in, 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 in some cases, they're significant enough. You can say, okay, this is, this is, this is Neanderthal, okay, because of the, the sloping brow and the wider um, sure. brow and so on. But um, or Homo erectus, which, which is kind of a smaller version of a Neanderthal, basically, and they lacked the, uh, the occipital bun at the back. But um, they're, all, they're all human beings, and the fossil layers in which we find these are post-flood layers. So these are all after the flood. So there's no, there's no evidence of a pre-Adamic uh, pre race, certainly not of people. And the Bible says he's made of one blood or from one man, all nations. So And Eve is the mother of all living, the Bible says. So we're all descended from Adam and Eve. All human beings are descended from Adam and Eve. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Why is Gamora, uh, Gamora uh, asked the question, why hasn't man been to the moon in over 70 years? This is kind of an unrelated question, but hey, why not? Uh, despite 70 years worth of exponentially better tech. Uh, do you know the reasoning behind that? I've always wondered that too. I know it's not related, but uh, why yeah, don't go the back on the moon? The reason is money. Well, first of all, we we are scheduled to go back. There's supposed to be uh, within the next few years, there's okay. there are plans to send people back to the moon and what's called nice. the Artemis program. And I, I, oh, how exciting. I hope it goes through. Um, <laughs> money is one of the big reasons and, okay. and there's no motivation anymore. The original motivation was the cold war with Soviets. And so we wanted to get to the moon first, uh, which we did in 69 and the budget that NASA had adjusted for inflation is about 10 times what they have now. Okay. Mm. Granted the technology is, is better now. There's no doubt about that. We can do things better in terms of computers alone. Oh my. Yeah. My my smartphone has more far more computing power than the entire. You could send someone to the moon. You could, you could send someone to the moon just with your phone. <laughs> in terms of, you know, in terms of the math, really, their computers were primitive back then, and massive because they didn't know how to miniaturize stuff. So yeah, the wow. technology is better now, but we don't have the yeah. funding, and so NASA is still going to do it, but they're they're doing it with ten percent of the budget that they had in mm. the sixties once adjusted for for inflation. Wow. So that 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 gives you a feel for it, and there's no space race anymore. We're not, you're not competing with the Soviets anymore. So there's not a lot of reason to go other than it's just cool. Right. <laughs> well, come on. Russia's got to step up its game. Yeah. <laughs> give yeah. us some, give us some problems. So we have a reason to go back to the moon. <laughs> All right. Um, Richard Cox has a question unrelated, but then we move back into the uh, evolution questions. Uh, Dr. Lyle, how has Dr. Bonson influenced your thought theology beyond the area of apologetics? Very positively. And, and, and massively, I would argue, uh, Bonson knew the Bible very, very well, very, very well. And um, I've benefited from him tremendously because I started I started studying all of his apologetic stuff. And he's got a lot out there and it's great. 
Sure. But as I realized, as I started going through his apologetic stuff, I, I realized one of the reasons his apologetics is so great is because his theology is so great. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. not to say I have 100% agreement in everything, but nonetheless, uh, we agree on a lot of areas. And sure. a lot a lot of those areas, he kind of helped me to understand too, where, where I had a lot of confusion, uh, some of the Levitical laws and things like that. Monson was an expert on biblical law as well. Um, I'm not going to go into all the areas of agreement. Sure. Just, but, no worries. Um, you, you know, I can say this. I would highly endorse the, the works of Greg Bonson beyond his, just his apologetic stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that's not a blanket. You know, I'm agreeing with every single nuance, but nonetheless, sure. it, it, it's it's masterful. The guy knew the Bible very well. and He was a very clear thinker. God gifted mm -hmm. him with a really sharp mind yeah. and uh, and he used it for God's glory. And I regret that I never got to meet Dr. Bonson in person, yeah. but uh, he's, yeah. he's going to get a big hug from me in heaven. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Toto Bermundo uh, asks, we hear, quote, gain of function research nowadays, but with the evolutionary assumptions of scientists, is this gain of function possible through mutations, genetically speaking? Thanks, Dr. Presup. <laughs> um, so with, with gain of function research, we, we can introduce genes and and it's it's um, it's amazing, and it's scary, uh, because we don't fully know exactly how all genes interact with each other. There was an experiment years ago to introduce a gene from a, a blue flower into a rose, so you have a blue rose. The idea, and it failed. The rose came out. It was it, it didn't it didn't produce the blue color because that gene needs to interact with other genes and things like that. And so we're we're kind of at the beginning of the game. We're starting to understand the genetic code. We we understand that which amino acids are produced by which uh, by various codons, amino acid sequences. We, we get that. But in terms of how they all interact with each other, it is it is an equation that is beyond the, the capacity of any one human mind and perhaps mm -hmm. beyond all of us combined. So we have to be careful about that. But yeah, that you can you can make bacteria do things that they don't normally do by introducing new genes. And that's that's kind of an artificial mutation because it's not something that occurs naturally. It's something that takes intelligence to do. And so I'll grant you can, yeah, you can make, you can make bacteria that produce um, penicillin, for example. And that's, that's a good use because then, you know, people are, 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 are not penicillin, um, insulin, I'm sorry, insulin. And that's a very good use of genetic engineering because then you can produce insulin for people who are diabetic and so on. That's great. And uh, we just got to be real careful about that. Um, and I won't, <laughs> there's a lot I could say about COVID-19 and things like that, but that'll get us all kicked off the air. So. <laughs> okay. I've never gotten a warning from YouTube, so I don't want tonight to be the first yeah, time. Yeah, let's not let's not change that. Let's not rock the boat. All right. Uh, Richard Cox asks, uh, have you heard of R.J. Rushdoony's argument against evolution from Genetics of Inbreeding in Institutes of Biblical Law, Volume 1? You know, I've read that, and yet I don't recall that. I don't recall his argument against that. Of course, it's been a few years since I've read it, Yeah. but uh, from the Genetics of Inbreeding. But it, 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 uh, there can be an argument made. Um, because inbreeding tends to concentrate the mutations. Um, we have, to, we have two sets of DNA. You get one set from dad, you get one set from mom. And the neat thing about DNA is most mutations, when there's a mistake in one of the two sets, if the other, if the other set's healthy, um, usually mutations are recessive. And so the other gene will sort of cover up and you won't have a disease. That's sure. nice. Uh, that's a feature. But if you marry somebody that you're closely related to, which is why we don't do that anymore, um, then, it, then it increases the probability of having two mutations at the same um, uh, location. 
and then you can suffer from a disease. And so purebred animals tend to have a lot of problems and they tend to, you know, golden retrie I love golden retrievers. Everybody knows that, that knows me. And, but they tend to have some genetic problems. They tend to suffer problems with their hips because mm -hmm. there's, there's some genetic constructions there that are missing and, and, and so on. And so now originally that wouldn't have been a problem. So this also goes back to, um, you know, cause people ask, well, where did Cain get his wife? And sure. well, obviously would have, you know, Adam had sons and daughters, the Bible says. So there would have, they were very, very close relations initially. And that would have been a problem initially because there's no, presumably Adam and Eve had no mutations at creation and relatively their children would have had relatively few. It wasn't until the time of uh, Leviticus, uh, you know, where the Mosaic law is given that, that God prevented close intermarriage. We still marry our relatives. Mm -hmm. We're all related. We're all just right. matter. If you don't marry a relative, you don't marry a human being, and that's a problem. <laughs> that's right. That's a good way to but, put it. Uh, so yeah, I can't. I can't recall Rush Dooney's argument specifically against that, but I have. Right. Re I have read his Institutes of Biblical Law, sure. and of course, it's that's that's kind of a tough read. <laughs> yeah, uh, Rush Dooney's. He's got a lot of material. Very very, yeah. very tough read. He's also written a really good book called The One and the Many. So I know folks are interested in that who want to go deep in the weeds of presuppositional methodology. Definitely want to check that out if you could find it. Uh, it's very hard to find. Uh, in the Creed asks, uh, do you foresee the James Webb project providing any confirmation of a young universe or will faulty presuppositions muddy the available data? Example, we don't know the one-way speed of light. Right. That's a very good question. Um, I think it will provide confirmation of a young universe. I've made some specific predictions on what James Webb will see. I, I posted an article several months back uh, back when James Webb was launched, and I made some predictions about what it'll see that are contrary to the predictions of the secularists. And we got the first data set today, and I'm looking at it, and I think my predictions are right. I think what we're seeing is uh, fully designed galaxies at distances that were probably not expected in the secular view. So, But I, I, I want to take a little time. I don't want to jump on things. Sure. I want to wait more data comes in. But yeah, I, I expect that, um, I, I think we'll get some good data. Faulty presuppositions do muddy the waters, but hopefully uh, in terms of the data that they're presenting, I think those will mm -hmm. be relatively um, untainted by secular presuppositions because they're using the scientific method to gather the data and that's creation based. So I'm, I'm, I, I believe in those presuppositions. So I think um, they will no doubt put a secular spin on it as they already have. I watched the, uh, the press announcement today um, where uh, NASA did a press uh, release today and I watched it and sure enough, they started interpreting the data as this is a star forming region and so on. I'm thinking, no, um, mm. but it's, it's a pretty picture and, uh, and you got some good data there, but I'll, I'll, I'll do the interpreting myself. Thank you. <laughs> so okay. I think we'll get some good, some good data, but take a look at my article that I wrote um, a couple months ago and, uh, take a look at on the your site I've made. It's on the website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. Yeah. Go back. I forget when. It was whenever James Webb was actually launched. So, okay. um, and I made some predictions about what we're going to see in terms of the distant galaxies and also in terms of extrasolar planets. Hmm. Thank you for that. That's super fascinating. Um, that'd be interesting to follow. Mr. T, not the Mr. T. Si side fact, I actually invited the real Mr. T on this show. He never responded, but it would have oh, really? been cool <laughs> if I got Mr. T. Except Jesus, fool. That would have been super cool, man. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the question is, does taxonomy support the evolutionary theory? No, I don't think it does. For the same reason that um, the quantum particles, they can be they can be taxonom taxonomically classified. Um, in fact, I would argue that taxonomy really kind of it really refutes evolution, doesn't it? Because if in, if the evolutionary view were true, things are constantly evolving from one thing into the next. And so if we look back into, into the fossil record, we ought to see not fish 
and amphibians, not not reptiles and birds, but something that's 80% reptile, 20% bird, and so on. Uh, taxonomy, if everything's in, in a continuous flux, I don't know how you do taxonomy, to be honest. The fact that organisms fall into discrete bins, there's variation within those bins, but there are certain bins that they fall into, and we can classify them. We can say, no, this is a reptile, and this is a bird. It's got fully designed feathers. We don't find fossils with feathers starting to evolve, where you have the quill, but you don't have the barbs, where you have the barbs, but you don't have the barbules, or the barbules exist, but they don't interlock yet, because that mechanism. No, the first feathers we find, and deep down in the fossil records, we can go fully designed feathers with an asymmetric quill, which just means they're designed for flight. So uh, I would say taxonomy um, makes sense in light of the fact that God is a God of order. Uh, we live in a universe, uni, universe, uni from one, diverse from diversity, meaning many. It's the one and the many. God himself is triune, and that's what makes classification of things possible. God's built that into the universe. So we can say, on the one hand, these two organisms are both mammals. They're one in that sense, but they're different in this sense. So the, it goes back to the one and the many, and I think that it's the Christian worldview that makes sense of the one and the many and really no other. And the fact that we can taxonomically classify almost anything. You, you, can, ta you can put automobiles into a taxonomy if you want to. And uh, I'm working on some ideas about how to... Um, present that in a, in a humorous way that makes the point. I've got sure. some new ideas coming up. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I really, I just as a side note, I really do appreciate your articles. They are, you're, you. re you're really good at taking something that's very complicated and simplifying it for the lay person, which is, goes very, goes a very long way in serving the church. I know it's not academic in the sense that you're writing to like professors, although they're welcome to the material and engage in it. Um, you do a very good job communicating uh, those complicated issues. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, Post Tenebrous Lux uh, asks, some evolutionists ask, if the sun is created on day four, what is the light on day one? Yeah, that's, uh, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details on that. It just tells us there was light. Apparently, God provided the light for the first three days. Uh, what's really interesting is the evolutionists that, and I like the way that's, that's, that's asked there. That's a perfectly legitimate question. Um, but some evolutionists say, well, it's impossible to have light without the sun. I'm thinking, well, I've got light in here. But I don't have the sun in here. I mean, you know, light doesn't, light doesn't necessarily require the sun. It just requires some kind of source. And that source mm -hmm. may have been God himself. He may have created light supernaturally for the first three days. Uh, the, the implication I get from reading Genesis is that if, if, granted, nobody was there, but if, other than God, but if there had been a human being standing on the surface, he would have seen a blue sky, bright blue, but there had been no sun in it. So God was apparently providing the light for those first three days. And then God um, provided a light bearer on day four to be for signs, seasons, days, and years, and to give light upon the earth. So the sun was the object that continued to produce the light that, that apparently God provided for those first three days. And the Bible doesn't specifically say why that, why that, why God did it that way. Uh, sure. My, my conjecture would be so it would be people would be less inclined to worship the sun as the primary source of life because most ancient cultures worship the sun mm -hmm. as the primary source of life. And so God displaced it a few days. It's not the prime. God's saying I'm the primary source of life. The sun mm -hmm. is just something that God made to sustain the life that God himself created. So he displaces a few days. Doesn't even give it a name. It's just the greater light. It's an sure. object that God made and not something to be worshipped. So, so, okay. So if someone says, okay, there was a light on day one and then God created the, the, the sun on day four. And then you say, well, you know, you don't need the sun to have light. Maybe God created this other source of light. Oh, what would you, how would you respond to someone and say, well, that's a little ad hoc, right? I mean, it's kind of like, all right. Yeah. There was this mysterious light that wasn't the sun. And then of course 
that mysterious light no longer plays the major role. Now you have the sun and now it explains, you know, blah, 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 blah. How would you interact with someone who uh, points that out? Well, I just gave a, a plausible explanation for why God may have done it that way. Um, but if he says that's not, you know, there's a better way, I said, well, then do it. Make, make your own universe and show me how you would do it better. <laughs> because until you can do that, your explanation is just ad hoc. You're just saying, ah, I'd have done it this way. And evolutionists like to do that. Oh, you know, I would have designed the eye this way. Do it. See if it works. See if it's better than the eyes I have. Because I got to tell you, you're not going to win in those kind of competitions with God. You're not going to win. I don't know why God does 99% of what God does. And the good, sure. the good news is in the creation worldview, I'm not required to know that. I have justification for believing that God is a God of his word. Mm. And uh, that's that's all that I really need. But I think it's perfectly sensible in light of what I just what I just said for God to make light, for God himself to provide the light for the first three days and then to provide mm. a light bearer to pr provide the light after that. That's perfectly sensible. Um, why he did it, it's up to him. Okay. Well, we have two more questions and then we'll wrap things up. You're doing an excellent job and I'm sure uh, folks will very much benefit from, I know there's some people who it's very late for them. So they uh, are going to watch the rest later, but this has been uh, an excellent conversation and I know this can be very useful for people. So here, the last two questions here. So the sire asks uh, this question, are you familiar with the argument that the holes at the bottom in a skull perfectly fits the evolutionist model for human development rather than creationism? I'm sorry, I haven't heard that argument. The I, I know that the way the skull sits on the neck is a little different for humans than it is for apes, because apes, the neck's kind of forward like that. Mm -hmm. but I have not heard that argument. Sorry. No worries. And the last question, uh, somewhat not related to evolution, but related to an area that you'd be familiar with. Uh, why is Gamora asks, are you familiar with the Electric Universe Thunderbolts project? If so, what are your impressions of their models of the universe and planets? And with that, we'll end our... our uh, our line of questioning here. Okay, so I am familiar with it. Um, I, it's something that I uh, looked at a couple decades ago. So, okay. and uh, I thought it's kind of a neat idea, but I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it works. And one of the reasons is because the electromagnetic force is incredibly strong, and because it's so strong, and because there are opposite charges in the universe, positive and negative, electrons and protons. Um, any any charge in the universe almost immediately neutralizes itself. If you have a positive charge out there, it will attract a negative charge because yeah. the, the electromagnetic force is stronger than gravity. And that, in a way, is, is what defeats it because it's stronger than gravity. It immediately neutralizes itself, and you end up with a particle like an atom. If an atom has one proton and one electron, it's neutral. And so it's not going to attract other atoms electromagnetically at a, at a long at a far distance, there's residual charge nearby, but mm. uh, so that's not going to happen. So, but basically, that's the idea behind the electric universe is that, uh, in fact, um, the shapes of galaxies and things like that are determined primarily by electromagnetic forces. I would say no, I would say gravity is the winner uh, sure. because gravity, even though it's a weaker force than electromagnetism, it has only uh, positive charges and they're attractive. Positive charges attract. So mass right. attract mass, and um, th and there's no way of neutralizing that. So gravity mm -hmm. on the largest scale, gravity wins, and that maybe is a little less in perspective because there's there's four fundamental forces. Gravity's the weakest, but on the large scale, it wins because uh, all mm -hmm. the other ones cancel out. So I think that's kind of interesting. Okay. Excellent. Well, Dr. Lyle, I'd like to thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And uh, I learned a lot. Again, I'm a seasoned apologist, but this area specifically is not an area that I usually get into. Um, and I've learned a lot just listening to you, and I'm sure others have learned a lot as well. So mm -hmm. I've been talking to Dr. Uh, Jason Lyle. He's the author of The Ultimate Proof for Creation, which I highly recommend. 
Um, and he is over there at the Biblical Science Institute, where he has most of his, uh, well, all of his articles covering a wide variety of apologetic um, and theological uh, topics. Highly recommend. And if you really value what Dr. Lyle uh, is doing, I highly recommend that you give uh, to his ministry if you can. Um, I, I remember um, I did a debate with an atheist on YouTube, and prior to going live with him, I asked, I asked him, you know, what do you do for a living? He goes, well, I do this. And I'm like, what do you mean? You do, you, you do like debates and stuff like people pay you so that you could like just debate Christians all day long. Like, wow. And that shocked me that, uh, you have unbelievers who gather together and support their favorite atheists as they work against the gospel. Uh, now that's not to say that you should, you know, throw money at various ministries and like, that's all about that. But I think it's, very, very helpful to financially support a ministry that you think is doing a really important work for the kingdom. And so if you see Dr. Lyle as doing that in a way that is honoring Christ and being faithful to scripture, I highly recommend that you go over to the Biblical Science Institute and support uh, in any way uh, what he's doing there. So uh, would you like to say anything before we close this interview out, Dr. Lyle? Thanks for that plug. I appreciate it. No, uh, no problem. I, I'd encourage people to check out the website regardless. Uh, I, I have a heart for students and students don't have money. So I, I, I read <laughs> a lot of free articles on the website. That's just to bless you. I hope it'll encourage you. So check us out on the web, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. And thank you very much, uh, Brother Eli, for having me on the show. appreciate well, it. Well, it has been an honor and a pleasure. Until next time, guys, uh, take care and God bless. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your questions. Bye-bye.